I'm Daniel Bass, manager of the South Asian program at Cornell University. And I'm Shravin Senevaratner, graduate student in architecture at Cornell and student worker at South Asian program. You're listening to the Next Monsoon podcast, where we examine how art and culture can help us navigate the uncertain future. This podcast is part of a bigger project in the South Asia program at Cornell University. We'll be interviewing scholars from around the world to help us understand how people and artists face climate change. In today's episode, we are excited to take you on a new journey as we shift our focus towards the tea plantation industry and climate change. Sarah Besky is a cultural anthropologist. She is an associate professor in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. Sarah has researched the Indian tea industry for over 15 years, both in the tea estates of Darjeeling and the auction houses of Kolkata. Her research uses ethnographic and historical methods to study inequality, nature, and capitalism. Welcome to the next monsoon, Sarah Besky. Thanks so much for having me. What's your first thought when you hear the word monsoon? Honestly, it's uh, mold, but that's that's <laughs> that's just maybe because <laughs> mold, which is a real issue, actually. I have to say, when you're living in the hills. But the other kind of thing, right, that I think about when. I go to the hills, right, is kind of the everyday kind of work of just getting around and getting, you know, and getting by, right, which is getting harder and harder and harder. Um, Because quite literally, you know, the hills are kind of sliding down the mountain with kind of each monsoon, which is really kind of an exploding tourism industry, um, whereby, right, the cities are getting hotter. Um, and, you know, moister and gnarlier during, you know, the hot months of the monsoon and, and people are escaping, right? Because they're a little, like, there's more disposable income to do that escaping and they escape to the hills. And that puts, you know, remarkable pressure on infrastructure. Um, at the same time, the people I work with, right, in, in the Darjeeling Hills, right? So um, I've been working on the plantations for a long time. My new work is actually outside of the plantations in this kind of agricultural enclave on the Indi-Bhutan border. But again, still kind of this, you know, mountain this Himalayan foothill type landscape. Um, at the same time, right, during the rains, right, many of the people, or kind of during all year, um, many of the people that I work with, especially the youth, are, are leaving the hills um, to go and find jobs in restaurants and, and as drivers or in whatnot. So when I think about the monsoon or a monsoon, any monsoon, the upcoming monsoon, the, perhaps <laughs> the next one, right? It's about these kind of flows, right? That are like literally wearing down in a real material way. Yeah. Um, the soil, the roads, the infrastructure, the livelihoods, the lives of the people that I work with up in the mountains. What inspired you to be part of this project on the next monsoon? What, you know, exciting about this project, there is the potential to kind of thinking about, you know, the, the climate change in South Asia is, um, you know, to kind of bring, you know, perspectives from the humanities to bear on what are kind of quite overdetermined by science, by, by scientific knowledge, um, right? So again, landslides are a great example. Um, you know, every monsoon, uh, geologists and kind of, right, uh, flannel clad men with sensors and various data driven devices, you know, come to, you know, measure this and poke and like, that's awesome, important work. But what I think is actually super interesting are the stories that people tell about those men with sensors and like, what are they doing? What kind of knowledge is it? And how do we kind of maybe kind of take the the stories and the questions about this kind of very precarious future, you know, about living in South Asia in the context of climate change, right? Drought, stories that we all see now regularly in the newspaper, droughts, 
floods, <laughs> you know, rains when there shouldn't <laughs> be rains when, you know, rains when, you know, not rain, raining, not raining when it should happen. Um, these are these kind of everyday, these kind of very, you know, quotidian occurrences now. How has your background and training as a cultural anthropologist shaped your view on climate change? What I kind of gravitate towards first in terms of questions is how did we come to be in this kind of particular moment and what does it mean? And to kind of ask those about climate change, right, the experience of climate change. Anthropology is the kind of the attention to, you know, the everyday, attention to narratives that often, you know, are seemingly unimportant. So you've been doing research in the Darjeeling Hills on the tea plantations and now just outside them for many years. And I was just wondering, like, what changes have you seen over that span of time, especially in relation to climate change, the relationship between people and the environment? Yeah, I mean, back to, you know, the question about kind of thinking about anthropology and climate change, right? I don't kind of take, you know, the environment or climate as this kind of bounded category. Um, like to me, climate change is an economic problem. It's a social problem. It's a political problem, right? It's, it's like this tentacular mess, right? And it's a real mess. Things that I've seen, right, you know, over the last, you know, many years of kind of working in the, you know, in um, in, the tea, in, in, in the tea industry, right? So first, like, in foremost, like Darjeeling is like this super, you know, often like, you know, famed bourgeois, like super luxurious kind of form of tea, you know, production. Mm-hmm. So you would think that like workers would like make money in, <laughs> right, they would be paid, right, in tandem or like in congruence with that, that fame and fortune. However, that is like absolutely not the case, right? And and despite, right, in the last kind of, you know, 20 years, really, right, more attention to social sustainability and all sorts of other forms of, you know, verifications and certifications, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing has made workers' lives materially better. These, these plantations are actually not as, quote unquote, productive as they maybe once were, right? The bushes are old. The rains are super erratic, right? This is changing like the the kind of economics of the industry, right? Because at least in Darjeeling, plantations kind of make pretty much all of their money on what's called the first and second flush, right? So the kind of early season when, you know, the kind of weather kind of turns a little warmer, when there's a little bit of a drizzle in the air, right? Before the monsoon comes, right? The monsoon is actually when the price drops and you're just kind of producing bulk. And you're pretty much just as a plantation, right? Trying to just move that material through the market as fast and as efficiently as possible. When I think about climate change, I think about climate change as a problem of work, you know, where we see kind of a move from production to reproduction, whereby, right, in order to kind of make ends meet, plantation workers and non-plantation workers are, say, turning to homestay tourism as a means of making a living. Um, They're certainly turning to migration, but that's long been a livelihood strategy here. Um, And, right, like, and we're, you know, climate migration is very much a, a thing in you know across you know obviously south asia so um in i mean i'm not you know the, <laughs> like these kind of you know oh the industry is kind of collapsing you know can often be kind of an apology for plant really bad plantation management mm-hmm. and i don't want to kind of do that but there is a real econ you know there's a real kind of ecological kind of conundrum of the plantation first like should there be plantations at all I would argue no, like like yeah. reform, land reform. Um, however, <laughs> um, with the plantations as they are now, kind of 150 years, just kind of like fixed into this landscape, right? They're they're an economic they're an economic and ecological problem. Um, but again, back to these kind of questions of landslides, right? What I think is actually the most 
vexing, dystopian, like fill in the blank kind of word that, that kind of signals doom um, to rip these plant, these bushes up, these tea bushes up because of the root structure would actually, according to some scientists, exacerbate landslides, not prevent them. So in a real way, the tea, the plantation is something that people are stuck with, um, despite the fact that it's not something that many people can, uh, you know, make a, a living, like at least it supports their children in the way that they want their children to be supported and so on and so forth. I'd like you to step back for a moment and take us on the journey. How do you get up to the plantations? Like what's the way the methods of transportation and the elevation to give our listeners a sense of, you know, the space that you're talking about? Okay, sure. (laughs) Right. So it's not a quick, you know, like, you know, you know, driving to the Syracuse airport kind of a, you know, jaunt. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an airport at the kind of essentially the base of the mountains in this kind of border town of Siligree. And then, right, normally it's like a four-ish and it's getting longer. It's a four-ish hour drive up the mountain. Um, And it's getting longer because of those landslides, because the roads keep washing out. Because there's only a couple roads that from, you know, the plains kind of traverse up the mountain. And, like, you, you maybe you've been on, like, one of these, like, kind of zigzag, zigzag kind of roads before. But, like, that's, like, how it is for four hours, right? And you're, you're kind of, you know, you kind of hug the ridge. Um, and so kind of on either side, depending on where, you know, where you are kind of in your drive, right, kind of the, the hills kind of plummet off from the road. Right? And often if you're driving up to Darjeeling, right, not if you're driving. So there's kind of two roads, right, you go up to Darjeeling, you go up to Kalimpong, which is, you know, this, you know, food producing landscape, go up to Darjeeling, it's pretty much blanketed with tea. So, and tea is actually quite striking as a landscape, right? It looks mm. looks so neat and orderly. There's like bright green bushes, especially mm-hmm. kind of if you're driving, say, in the monsoon, yeah. um, and it's not super cloudy that day, right? These like, you know, little topiaries, right? They're all groomed and these little like, you know, so, so it's a striking green landscape and kind of these bushes cling to the hillside, the houses cling to the hillside, yeah. right? You're probably kind of like zigging in and out of the path of what, what is known as the toy train this like little narrow gauge locomotive that has kind of plied the same road that the cars do, you know, since uh, the late 1800s originally Mm -hmm. to kind of um, bring kind of some supplies up, but to bring tea down. Um, And so that's this winding journey that brings you, you know, after many hours to the town of Darjeeling, which is this, you know, town perched on a ridge, Mm -hmm. again, surrounded by plantations. Um, so yeah, so for some, it's quite, you know, nauseating when yeah. for others, it's quite beautiful or <laughs> some combination between the two. What is it like for a worker working in a tea plantation and what are the social hierarchies that are also built over time? Oh, wow. Yeah, no, like great question. Where do I start? Like the hierarchies go every which way, you know, structure upon structure, upon upon discrimination, upon, you know, entrenched racialized hierarchies, entrenched gendered hierarchies, entrenched geographically molded hierarchies. But anyway, kind of working out from the plantation, there's labor and there's management. And there's also, at least in the Darjeeling plantations, quite gendered division of labor. In Darjeeling, it's still all done by hand, right? So all of that hand plucking is done by women, all of the kind of hand pruning, right, which is done kind of actually right around February, that's all done by women. 
but men, you know, tend to over, you know, kind of work on the machines in the factory, um, backpack spraying for pesticides. Also, the workforce is all Nepali, generally speaking, especially in Darjeeling, um, whereas the management, um, especially in the ownership, is generally not. There's this ethnic relationship on the plantation that, you know, lay over contemporary India, but then also lay over the state of Bengal, where Nepalis are majority in the hills, but they are not in the state as a whole. So the plantations that are maybe more one ethnic group or tribal group than another because of the way that that recruitment kind of worked. You were mentioning about how women had to do the hand pruning in Darjeeling versus in South India, where it's more mechanized. Is there a reason why like hand pruning is associated with luxury, with handmade, handcraft? I don't know if you've ever seen like these kind of colonial era kind of like tea images. Daniel could talk way more about this than I can yeah. about like kind of Lipton's, the Sri Lankan kind of like plantation mm-hmm. industry, like really kind of like, you know, really like doubled down on this kind of aesthetic. Whereby the woman tea plucker kind of hands, right? The hand is this kind of part, part of that aesthetic. Like mm. hands the like white, you know, doily clad, you know, <laughs> uh, British, you know, tea drinker, you know, at this like yeah. tea table, right? Like that kind of, that image of, of, you know, of, 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 of the hand, of, of hand delivery, of hand plucking, right? So it's not like, and then the, the kind of, the other image, right, the, the kind of, I think that it kind of dominates in, in tea advertising even today, right? And like, absolutely today, like this has not gone away, is the kind of stooped and comely woman, right? out over a bush hands kind of atop it right because it's all right if you like kind of imagine a tea bush right like you know women like you know kind of are, are kind of grooming the top of that with their hands and that that like that image key to most kind of representations of tea um and so whether you know whether that's kind of connote you know connoting luxury or perhaps tea itself right as a kind of something that makes tea legible as the consumer item Also, like how the people, the workers are so tied to the landscape. What is a sick landscape and what happens to the people? I wrote a book about that too. <laughs> this is great. Um, this is like, so sick landscapes are this, you know, really interesting kind of, you know, concept or, or sickness is really also importantly, like not contained to the tea industry. Um, but it is a kind of, you know, term of art, right, that was deployed in, say, the Bombay Mills, right, Nehru kind of, like, famously described them as sick, right, sickness is an industrial kind of concept, and so kind of as, you know, we were talking about with regards to kind of what are the effects of climate change on the tea industry with production going down, uh, kind of yields, yields of, of tea and yields of money going down, um, what more and more kind of tea plantations are doing is essentially when production is pretty much going down, the autumn flush is kind of almost over, Plantations kind of just like declare themselves sick, declare themselves closed, right? Right before they have to pay the puja bonuses. And then they open up right before the first flush is supposed to kind of come online. And right, and so when you're kind of declare, when you self-declare yourself sick, it's akin to bankruptcy. It's not bankruptcy. I'm saying it's, it's like it. Um, you don't have to pay workers, all the <laughs> permanent workers who are supposed to be, you know, maintaining the landscape. You don't have to pay them. Like, so they're just like, like 
So none of that maintenance work is getting done. Um, and then, you know, worker, but workers are staying on the, on the plantation because it could open any day. If everyone, everyone needs to report to work, lest you lose your job. And if you lose your job, you lose your house. So this next monsoon project is about cultural responses to climate change. And some of the other uh, people we interviewed are focusing on visual art, performance art, film. As an anthropologist, what are some of the cultural responses to climate change in your research that you've seen? I don't have any art. Okay, so like so on. Um, you got culture. You may not have art, but you I got, got culture. Cult- See, I got anthropologists have culture. So for me, what I'm kind of paying attention to, right, is this kind of move of you know kind of tourists, right, like upper middle class tourists mm. from you know urban India into the hills to occupy the houses of. Nepali and you know Lepcha and Bhutia families, um, right? And like and these are these are not hotels that are coming up, right? In the hills, as a response to the heating of cities and the toxification of cities, these are homestays, right? And Mamta Banerjee, right, CM of West Bengal, is actively pushing um, homestays in two specific sites: the Darjeeling Hill and the Sundarbans, right? Two like acute sites of climate disaster mm-hmm. and and so for me like kind of thinking about right how the kind of collapse of an agrarian economy is has kind of created this this move to the service economy this move to kind of selling the home right to selling reproductive labor instead of productive labor like remove from a move to selling not rice but like one's own home and one's own like rice that they have to cook, that they had to buy, you know, that was brought up from Shiliguri for these tourists who are also coming up from Shiliguri. Um, that, that is that is the kind of, you know, response, kind of, quote unquote, that I want to kind of, you know, play, pay attention to is in the homes, in the unremunerated work of, especially women, but of families in the, in the hills. This issue of homestays, I'm very curious because, at least in Sri Lanka, the homes of tea plantation workers, they don't own them. They don't have running water or electricity oftentimes. So, like, it would not be a place for tourists to stay. And the the development is in, like, former planters' homes and other things that the estate Mm -hmm. owns have been converted into these kind of luxury getaways. But are you talking something much more affordable Mm-hmm. Much more affordable. Yeah. And yeah, and so on the plantations, right, there's this kind of on and off the plantation thing that's going on. Oh, okay. Um, so like the, the bungalow tourism thing where you can like stay in a bungalow and like sleep yeah. beside a tiger with its head still on it on the floor and like go for a butterfly <laughs> hunt and picnic. Like that whole like Raj, Raj era fetish yeah. tourism, like that's been going on for like 20, 30 years. But plan, like some plantations, especially in the case of, you know, a fair, like a fair trade certified plantations, plantation management had been pushing homestays since I started my dissertation work in like 2006. Um, that's how I was actually able to stay on plantations like live in workers houses because there was already this like weird homestay thing that they were trying to pilot um and management took you know kind of a huge chunk of the money that tourists were paying them to you know to you know tourists were paying to the you know plantation and like the the management gives you know the workers a little cut um so homestay tourism is one thing that's kind of you know been kind of happening in, in bits and spurts on plantations but just recently there was a, an act passed in which 15 percent of plantation land in Darjeeling can be kind of converted to non-plantation purposes or non-tea purposes 
So changing these plantation leases to kind of remove 15% of, you know, the land under T will mean a massive infrastructure building for, for tourism. Since you are speaking to us from your sabbatical in Kolkata, what is your current research about? What I'm working on um, right now is kind of an ethnography of the concept of settlement. Settlement is so much more than just that kind of land revenue system, right? Settlement is about kind of making place and people legible. It's about making place and people productive. And this was a massive colonial mega project, right? Not unlike the plantation. I'm kind of paying attention to kind of all of the reproductive labor, i.e. food production, right? Mm. Um, that allowed these other, you know, projects to persist or, or exist and persist. Um, and uh, not unlike the plantation, right? The, these these kind of what are called government estates, and there's thousands of government estates in Bengal, or thousand and change um, in Bengal. Um, it's, it's a kind of late colonial project that are kind of oriented to both revenue generation, i.e., through rent, and the relationship between like getting land rent up. Um, was this kind of massive project in, that enrolled scientists and enrolled colonial bureaucrats, agricultural scientists are doing at this time, like what crops should be planted, how should they be planted, and then, but in addition, like who should marry whom, like how can inheritance work, what do we do with all these widows, like these are all kind of questions that the settlement officer kind of, you know, answered. How does all this work on settlement relate to climate change? How do I stay settled on my land, right? Especially as agricultural kind of markets collapse, right? There is no market for local rice, say, anymore. Really minimal market for local, you know, things like corn. Um, how do I stay in place, right? And this is a question, like, that, that is not unique to the hills, but it is a question of climate change kind of in multiple, you know, what, like, are there rights to stay home, right? Are there rights to kind of occupy one's land and not you know, be migrant workers, right? <laughs> Farming is becoming increasingly not an, not an option for people. Um, those are climate change induced kind of things, right? Mm. So settlement is a climate question. And as I kind of, you know, mentioned before, right, climate change to me is also a question of work. Like, what are the new forms of work that people have to do in order to keep a home, to, you know, to provide for their children? Do you have examples in mind of people being resilient against these issues that they have to face with climate change in South Asia? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I worry also about the, and like I, I hear what you're saying, I worry about the rhetoric of resilience because it sounds too nice. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it sounds too rosy. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and so it's just like, I'm going to flip your question. And like, people are just get, every, everyone's just getting by. Is that resilience? I don't know. Like, is it making it to the next day? Like, making it to the next day is what I see. Like, making it, like, you know, um, like, you know, the, like, people, like the folks that I work with in the villages, right, are leasing out their homes to tourism companies just so they can stay in their homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is this really bizarre, like, maybe, like, perhaps even TMI kind of, you know, detail for, for purposes here, <laughs> but like, you know, like they're, they're, they're entering into really like things that they're deeply troubled by in order to stay on their land. So yes, they're staying on their land. We could, we call that resilience. People aren't like, 
people would not people themselves would not call that resilient and therefore like i like i push back against the, against the language of resiliency it's just like how do people get by mm. is there any form of collective response or collective action that might be taking place in the hills I mean, most most of the collective kind of collective work, um, right, is, you know, often having to be directed to repairing landslides, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in like certainly upon occasion that's remunerated, depending on where the landslide is, say, a a national highway or something like that. Um, But I mean, because that like, like there's only a couple right arteries, as you know, we talked about earlier. There's only a couple arteries, like up to the hills, right, up to yeah. these kind of towns and villages, um, right. So then, like, when they break down, it's really, it's a real huge problem, right? Because again, like, basic grains are not being produced in the hills anymore, right? Everything is like all basic supplies are coming up from the plains to the hills, right? Mm-hmm. So shutting down these roads is really, you know, it's dire. Um, and so collective, you know, so collective response, collective action, collective work is directed as moving as fast as possible with the minimal resources often directed to the hills to clear those landslides, knowing full well. And this is what I'm like, this is what I'm talking about with like why resilience is not what I want to kind of think about is knowing they're, they're repairing those roads, knowing full well that they're going to slide again. Because they will. Right, because once they slide once, they're going to slide again. And like you can, there's one road. There's long. It's a longer road, but it's a little bit. You know, um, it's kind of the preferred route. It's my preferred route now, because of how many kind of massive trucks are on the the other road because of the hydropower installations um, on the Tista River. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's just really depressing. <laughs> like again, dystopian kind of trip up to the hills. But anyway, you can see these scars of where, you know, of where the landslides happened and like, will it happen again tomorrow? Will it happen again in three years? Who knows, but it probably will happen again. Um, and, you know, like that's been, you know, that's been my experience working in the hills for, you know, since I'm working on the plantations and it's quite stark on the plantation, right? Because when mm-hmm. things are so neat and manicured and you see something drop a little bit, you're like, when is that going to go? Does it even go tomorrow? Does it even go three years? It's going to go sometime. Just when is it? When is that happening? Um, an inspiring picture of life <laughs> in the hills. <laughs> I'm yeah. I mean, but it, I mean, I, I say that, but I mean, it is. I mean, it's more just like so much of the imagery, right? Back yeah. to your, you know, your question about you know, smiling tea workers plucking tea and giving it <laughs> to doily clad women and in, in Europe. Um, so much of the image of the hills are kind of smiling you know, ethnically, you know, you know, racialized, fetishized, you know, you know, you know, feminized, you know, these, this image of happiness, right? So much so that like the CM, again, Mamta Banerjee kind of, you know, whenever a kind of development project kind of gets talked about in some kind of way, or maybe like something is promised in some, you know, abstract fashion, right? She declares that the hills are smiling. And that like, that's real rhetoric. Because for many people, the hills are falling down. Hmm. I mean, like, that's the hard thing about, cli- like, I mean, climate disaster in these particularly kind of sensitive sites. It's like, it's, it's a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right? And so, you know, you, or- like, you organize collectively around one thing, right? You clear that one landslide. Mm-hmm. And you knowing full well and talking about the fact that it will slide again. 
to kind of trade in the language of goods and bads has never, never really been my jam. Um, right. It's just like, it's just profound ambivalence. You know, it's really hard to talk about positives and negatives, really positive, right. When you're working with the people who, you know, who as they're collectively organizing, talk about that inequality and talk mm-hmm. about that uneven, that un, those uneven feelings. So with all this in mind, kind of looking over everything, what are some of the goals and outcomes of this next monsoon project? So, I mean, to me, I'm a process over product kind of person. Like, and so Mm -hmm. for me, um, like the process of kind of collective thought, collective deliberation, like getting people back into a room together after three plus years of protracted isolation, like that to me is part of the goal to like, Again, which is really weird for a climate conference, like <laughs> very, very, I very much note that. Um, however, um, right, that like that sense of repartee, that sense of like thinking of think, because it is such an interdisciplinary conversation. These are people who don't normally talk to each other. And I think mm-hmm. that that's really cool um, <clears throat> to kind of get, you know, to get folks into a room where where people are working on these kind of you know cultural responses whatever that might mean because right so for for some of the some folks right that's a very specific kind of you know um thing in the world and for other folks yeah. it's it's not right because everything's a cultural response um right so but then what is what what are cultural responses what are climate you know what is climate what is climate change what are you know and then to kind of then then move across not just disciplines but sites across south asia to kind of think of right, which is this you know you know particularly you know like <laughs> It's a site of, you know, of climatic events, right, in real yeah. and disturbing ways. And so, like, how, and how, how can we kind of think together about this space and to use the space as that ground for collective thinking? That's it for today's episode on the next month's soon. Next time, we'll be talking to Sunal Kular, with whom we'll have an in-depth conversation on the collective power of art in response to climate change. We would like to give special thanks to Sam Lubowitz and Angelica Kramer at Cornell's Language Resource Center for their assistance with recording this podcast. Shivin Senvaratna not only co-hosts this podcast, but is also our editor. Funding for the podcast and the entire Next Monsoon Project comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please follow the South Asia program on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SAPCornell. You've been listening to music by SAP Administrator Gloria Lemus-Chavez and her partner Brandon Kane. Make sure to check out more of their work in the show notes. The ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Cornell's Office of the Vice Provost for International Affairs, or any other official entity of Cornell University. I'm Daniel Bass. And I'm Shavin Sinavratna. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode for new conversations and stories on the next monsoon.